After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way, Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the two sons of Zebedee, two others were together. Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not, not, did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered, no. Then he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out, put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was risen from the dead. When they had finished the breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Jesus, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciples whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at the table close to Jesus and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, this is referring to John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You, you follow me. So the saying spread among the, the, the brothers that this disciple was to was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were not every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word.
Well, it's been a a wonderful study. Again, if you're here for the first time, we've tried to take a chapter a week and just try to get some sense of the rhythm of the gospel. So or for the purpose of when you meet people and they are interested in hearing more about Jesus, you don't say, hey, let me give you the pastor's phone number. I'm sure he can tell you about him. But you say, hey, would you like to read through the Gospel of John together? And then you begin to to know more about John as well. John, as we've said many times, uh, states his purpose for writing the letter at the very end of John chapter 20, where he says this in verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he's writing some things down. He's putting some things together in hopes of a a person who doesn't know about Jesus intersecting Jesus and saying, "Okay, I see these things. I I see that they're written down. I understand now more about Jesus and I'm going to believe in him. I'm going to trust in him, which is why John's gospel is frequently the, the gospel that's recommended for people who want to learn about Jesus. And so really, in some sense, these first these 20 chapters of really the the main target has been the the non-believer. But I would say for chapter 21, the, the primary target is the believer. But specifically, the believer who has failed miserably. A lot of scholarship debate on whether John 21 really belongs in the um, in the gospel, because it it seems that it comes to a natural close in chapter 20. But I think there's an important uh, piece of information here for the believer, the person who has believed in God. But then they find themselves, although a genuinely dedicated disciple, they, they they maybe they thought it they had it all together. I don't know if you know this expression uh, you, you thought you were all that in a bag of chips. Have you ever heard that expression? That's kind of a hip hop thing. So I know I know it, but not a lot of people here would know that. But but, you know, you thought you and Christ were all that in a bag of chips. You had it all together. You embraced Christ. You thought you were moving in the right direction. You genuinely had a knowledge, saving knowledge of him. You had a genuine relationship with him. But then you then then you just failed miserably. You can't blame shift it off. It's, it's the kind of failure that's been public and everybody knows you did it. That, that's what this chapter. That's the kind of person this chapter is written to. A person who's taken a mighty fall. So we're going to observe here in these few verses that I pointed out uh, how Jesus responds to the believer when you've totally blown it. But prior to that, I want to I want to just make several observations that I think we could have a sermon on any one of these observations. But I think it's instructive to you as you read through the gospel and you're talking to your friend. There may be another point at which you need to pick up on because you know them, you know the gospel. And here are just some other things and not an exhaustive list. Verse 3 in chapter 21. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And they said, well, we'll go with you. And they went out. They got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, nighttime was considered the best time for fishing in the Sea of Galilee or sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, 
But you wonder uh, if John isn't once again using the darkness, the physical darkness, to display uh, or, or amplify a spiritual darkness. We, we've seen this all through the Gospel of John. Even in the opening chapters, light has come into the world, but the darkness hasn't understood it. In chapter 3, Nicodemus, remember the very religious man comes to Jesus and yet he comes in the darkness and he leaves in the darkness because he doesn't know who Jesus is. Judas, in this very chilling conclusion to chapter 13, after he agrees to betray Jesus, John writes, after receiving the bread, this is at the Last Supper, Judas immediately went out. And here's the last sentence. And it was night. Certainly it was night time, but there was a, a great darkness that had overcome Judas. Chapter 20, Mary Magdalene, she comes to the tomb and she is yet to see the risen Savior and it's dark. And here in chapter 21, the disciples have gone fishing and they're not catching anything. And it's without Jesus and it's night. So I think, John, you have to decide, you know, how John's using this. But I think there's a case to be made here that John seems to repeat through the letter. He's trying to grasp at any sort of analogy that would be helpful for the non-believer to say, you understand what it means to be in the dark. And, and what John's trying to say is if you're without Jesus, then you're in the dark. Second observation, there's... Some debate, again, as to whether the disciples' decision to go fishing here was an act of disobedience. You know, maybe since they had been at the empty tomb, they'd seen Jesus, and, and they're supposed to be the people who are planning this early church, that uh, some commentators will say, well, they've fallen back into an old pattern or an old habit. They're supposed to be doing something else, but uh, they've fallen back into uh, fishing and maybe that that's possible, but there's really nothing in the text that would lead you to believe that necessarily. And I like what James Boyce said about the point, the point of the text. The point of the story is not disobedience. It's rather to teach us what happens when we try to accomplish spiritual things by our own strength. Fishing, as you know, is a, a symbol for evangelism. And the seven disciples are out there fishing and they're fishing without Jesus and they keep fishing without Jesus and they keep pulling up the empty net. And it's maybe John's way of saying when Jesus comes along, when Jesus is the center of your evangelism, then something happens. But if you want to try to do evangelism without Jesus, if you want to just do evangelism on your personality, your sharp responses to people's questions, uh, your, your humor, your, your athletic ability, your musical ability, all those things are, are fine, but those aren't Jesus. And so if you really want to catch people, if you want to be a, a fisher of men, as Jesus had said to Peter previously, you're going to have to have me in the boat. Otherwise, you're in the dark. Two main activities, third observation, two main activities here in this text are fishing and shepherding. Well, those are the two main activities of these disciples as they move out. They're going to be fishers of men. They're going to be shepherds of a flock. Four, their fourth observation, there's a familiar pattern of behavior. 
John is described as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And John is the disciple who is the quicker to recognize. He, remember, he comes to the empty tomb. He's the first one who believes. And so he recognizes Jesus. He says in verse 7, it is the Lord. He's the, he's the quicker one to receive. Peter's the quicker one to react. He's always throwing himself into situations. He's always throwing himself in. Remember, John stops at the edge of the tomb. What does Peter do? He races by. So we get a, a sense of a familiar pattern here. John can see things quicker. Peter reacts to things quicker. And I love this verse. Uh, just as an eyewitness account, Peter threw himself into the sea. He just couldn't wait. We can't, we can't get the boat turned around fast enough. You guys can't haul in the fish fast enough. I, I'm just throwing myself in. I'm, I'm not going to wait on anything else in order for me to get to Jesus. <clears throat> Fifth observation, verse 12. This would be an interesting observation to, to develop, but we don't have time. There seems to be this awkward conversation or maybe this this encounter seems awkward because they want to ask Jesus, who are you? But then it says, but they knew it was Jesus. So there's some tension here where I'm seeing Jesus and I want to say, who are you? But yet then I'm. Believing it's Jesus, so I don't need to ask that question. N.T. Wright says this about that verse. They, the disciples, were aware of Jesus being somehow different, as well as certainly the same. This brief account is heavy with the strangeness of new creation. I like that line. This brief account is heavy with the strangeness of new creation. There's a difference and a sameness between the present body and the risen body. For the disciples, there was a simultaneous recognition and puzzlement in meeting Jesus. An awareness of something they could hardly put into words except as a question, who are you? Imagine the two of us meeting in heaven with a new body and unable to sin. I think we would look at each other and say, now, who are you? I mean, you look familiar and you look like the old Paul Phillips, but thank the Lord you look new, too. And I want to ask, who are you? There's there's a sameness about the resurrected body and yet there's a. A strange difference, and I think there's a sense of that here. Sixth observation. Jesus, you notice, is still serving the disciples. The last meal the disciples had had together was in the upper room. He's not only serving the meal, he's also serving the disciples by washing their feet. And now we have this context, another meal, and he's the one who who got up early, who made the fire. He got his own fish. I don't know. Why I needed the disciples to haul in any, except for an object lesson. Just can you just imagine for a moment the humility of that? Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity, the resurrected Savior. I mean, what would you do if you were coming to the shore at that point? I mean, I could have thought a lot of spectacular things to do. 
And what does Jesus do? Hey, I got up early. I'm here to serve. It's amazing. Well, Jesus isn't just serving them fish here. He's serving them all, but specifically Peter, some restoration. They all need some restoration, Peter particularly. So I want to spend the rest of the time just zeroing in on that conversation beginning in verse 15. Now, let's make sure we understand the scene. There's eight men, Jesus and seven disciples there. They're sitting around a campfire. The sun is just beginning to break over the horizon. They've just finished this meal. Some conversation maybe has has sort of come to a natural close. And there's just just that moment of silence where, you know, the conversation hasn't kicked back up. And Jesus breaks in with this question to to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This is a difficult question for Peter. And when you think about it's a meal, it's a meal with the other disciples and Jesus. It's campfire. You're supposed to remember back to another setting of similar kind, a previous meal. The upper room, you remember Jesus is in the upper room and he says to the disciples, You will all fall away on account of me. You remember what Peter says? Here he is. He's he's sharing a meal with all the disciples. And what does he say? We will never fall away. (laughs) I mean, that would have been a good thing to say. But he didn't. What does he say? I will never. What does he do with the rest of the disciples? I mean, he just throws them all underneath the bus, right? I mean, these sorry saps over here, they may very well decide to not follow you. But me, I'm different. You can trust me, Jesus. And he stands up in in this big bravado in front of all the disciples, and he tells everybody how, how different he is. Peter apparently forgot the coaching tip that there's no I in team. And so he, develop, he, he, he elevates himself above the other disciples. That's the previous meal. What about a previous campfire? What kind of conversation had happened at the last campfire Peter was at? Jesus gets arrested. He's brought into a courtyard. John presumably follows in. He has some connection. He gets into the courtyard. He brings Peter in with him. It's cold. It's at night. There's a charcoal fire around. People are warming, warming themselves. Peter is cold. He, he gets up close to the charcoal fire, and somebody at the fire says, Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? Three times. Peter says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Luke actually records in the third time when Peter's at the campfire and he looks at the guard or whoever it was that asked the question. And he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. He looks across the fire and Jesus is crossing the courtyard and they catch eyes. This is the last time Peter had been at a campfire and he'd been looking 
at Jesus eye to eye. Now he's at another campfire and he's looking at Jesus eye to eye. What a look that must have been that Luke recorded. Most scholars think that this campfire conversation is taking place with all the other six disciples. I think when you get to... um, Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple following Jesus. Most people think that's a, that this is happening after the campfire conversation. And, and you know that this question would have been difficult for Peter to field in front of the other disciples even one time. But Peter has to field the same question three times. And you get a sense of the heaviness when when Jesus asked a third time, it says Peter was grieved. He was heavy. He was he was hurt because Peter knew that Jesus wasn't just asking a question. He was making a point. He, he, Jesus is reminding Peter in front of everyone else about Peter's previous boasting at a meal and previous failure at a campfire. Everybody knows it. Everybody's in on it. Don Carson writes this, whatever potential for future service Peter had depended had depended not only on forgiveness from Jesus, but also on reinstatement amongst the disciples. Now, in this conversation, there's a lot of things that we could pick up on. I want to just mention three to you. And as you listen to these three, they they all could have some application. But the the way I was thinking about this is that you would you would see this context. You would sense yourself being around this campfire. And then in one of these three points, this would be like a, a conversation Jesus is having with you specifically this morning. You would be sitting here this morning, you would be saying, it, what I feel like is Jesus was having this conversation with me. Which, which one of these three things is he trying to specifically address in your life this morning? First thing that we notice is that in Peter's response, he drops the comparisons. Do you love me more than these? Remember, Peter, all these guys, you compared yourself to all these guys. Do you love me more than these? Well, I love you. (laughs) I'm going to learn not to compare myself now to everybody else. I'm not going to put my faith on a pedestal in, in any way. And, and doing this three times is, is a way in which Peter is having to look at these six other disciples and say, you know what? I threw you underneath the bus. And he has to look at these men and say, yeah, I'm not better than you. I know I said it. But, but I'm no better than you. You see, what really matters is, is whether or not you love Jesus. Not how much you think you love Jesus compared to other people. What really matters is whether you love Jesus or not. Not whether you think you love him better than somebody else. Because when you, when you live your life of faith by comparison, then you've lost sight of Jesus. And you've replaced that with yourself or other people. And I wonder if if any of these phrases might go through your mind as a believer. 
you look around and you say, you know, I'm, I'm the only one who's really making a sacrifice. I'm, I'm giving most here. I'm giving more than most people. I'm the one with the best theology. I'm the one who's really spirit-filled and free. I'm the one keeping most of the commands of God. If any of those phrases or like phrases sound familiar, then you've lost sight of Jesus. You've lost sight of grace and you've taken the exit ramp to self-worship. The Bible calls that idolatry. And, and you see what's so important, you, you have, especially if, you, if you've been in the Bible, you see the weight of the significance of this conversation that it must be had with Peter, who's going to be the, the first head of the church, the one who's going to give that first New Testament sermon in Acts chapter 2. It's like Jesus is trying to bore into Peter and say, Peter, you're going to be the leader you're going, to be the, you're going to be the person who opens the door. I, I'm giving you the, the keys of the kingdom of God, and you're going to open the door. And you know who you're going to open the door to, Peter? The hated Samaritans. Nobody wants to be around the Samaritans. And you're going to be the one standing at the door. You're going to unlock the kingdom of God for the Samaritans. You're going to be the person who stands there with the keys and opens the door figuratively to the kingdom of God for a Roman centurion of all people. These are not people who get to come into the church. But Peter, I'm commissioning you to stand at the door and you've got to open it up. And in order for you to open it up against people who are inside who who don't want want these people to come to the church because they think they're better than everybody else on the outside. You've got to stand there and you've got to have the keys and you've got to be the person who says, hey, I'm not better than you. I'm no better. Hey, hey, everybody inside is a sinner saved by grace. And, and Peter, I need you to be that man. You can't have your faith in comparison. You've just got to have your eyes on me. And you're going to be the one who's opening that door for all kinds of people to come through into the kingdom of God. And you're not going to only just get pressure from the outside. You're going to get kickback pressure from the inside. Who people who may think, hey, once I stepped inside, I got better than the people on the outside. That's a person who lost sight of Jesus. They had sight, but they walked in and instead of keeping their eyes on the cross, it became an exit ramp to self-worship. And you notice, I think, here in verse 21, it seems to me that Peter kind of slips back into this old habit. They're walking along the beach at some point. Moments later, and he looks back and he sees John following. Hey, what's going to happen to him? I mean, I just get the sense, don't you, that it's it's this old habit that Peter has. He's he's always trying to look at himself in comparison to somebody else. I mean, you told me stuff about myself, but really, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at him. Is it going to be similar to him? And what does Jesus say? I think in a very rebuking tone, Peter. <laughs> Didn't we just go over this? 
What is it to you that happens to other people? You follow me. I am the destination, not John. You see, so many Christians make another Christian the destination point. If I could be just like him or if I could just be like her, what is that to you? You follow Jesus. He's got a very different path for you than he has for me. And you don't, you don't want to get on my path. And I don't need to be trying to get on to yours. So as a follower of Christ, maybe this is the part of the conversation that, that Jesus is having with you this morning. He's looking across to you at the campfire. And he's saying, you just you live your whole life in comparison to other people. Just you, you follow me. Second observation here is about Peter's confession. Listen carefully what James Boyce says. Does it seem cruel to you that the Lord asked Peter three times in front of the others whether he loved him? Does that seem cruel to you? It certainly was painful, yet it was not cruel. The truly cruel thing would have been to let the matter go on festering in Peter so that throughout his entire life, both he and the other disciples would think Peter was inferior and unworthy of the office. The kind thing was the public restoration so Peter and the others would know Peter's past and that his past was in the past and that the Lord himself had commissioned Peter to further service. Now listen to this last statement. That's why the Bible calls for appropriate public confession of sin. God does not wish to be cruel to us, though the experience of confession can be painful. It is to the end that the matter it, it, it is to end the matter so that we can pick up and walk on with Jesus. Whenever Jesus drags you into a confession. It's not a cruelty, it's a kindness. Because until that confession happens, you just can't walk on. I mean, you know this, don't you, if, as a married couple? 100% of the arguments in my family, I'm right. And I mean, in my mind, I'm right. And I know that even when I'm arguing and I'm wrong, I'm going to make it sound like I'm right. I mean, that's why you don't want to be married to me. I can give you many more, but that's one of the reasons. And if I stay in that position, Nancy and I can't walk on. We're stuck. I've got to come back and say to her, not just to Jesus, but to her, You're, you were right. Then, then we can walk on. One summer, I was at a Young Life camp, and I got a spider bite on my ankle. And, of course, it was at night. I didn't know. I thought it was like a mosquito bite or something. And I'm later in the day scratching. It kind of starts itching. starts getting red. starts getting puffy. Like, that's a weird mosquito bite, you know? 
So then it kind of looked like I swallowed a volleyball and it went to my ankle. So I'm like, hey, uh, not a mosquito bite. So I go to the doctor at the camp and he says, hey, it looks like a spider bite. And you need some crutches, obviously. We don't want to put any weight on this thing. I was like, okay, is it going to get better? Well, we'll see. Uh, this is good doctoring here at these Young Life camps. Well, it gets infected. Just No, I mean, it was a, all this happened pretty quickly the next day. Getting bigger, more weight on the crutches. Can't do anything at camp with crutches. And he said, Paul, hey, look, this is what needs to happen. This thing needs this. We need to carve out this, confect, this infection. And we don't have any numbing agent here at camp. So you can wait till you get home. But you'll have to, you know, it'll be somewhat painful and you can crutch around or you can, we can just carve it out. Just, you know, you bite on your finger or something. <laughs> we literally were in this little area and I had Nancy's hand. I'm just like a little baby. Oh, no. And, and the doctor said, don't, don't hold his hand. Like, this is going to be painful. So he takes a knife. He carves this out of my ankle. And he said, Paul, it's going to be a lot more painful, but it's just going to be a little bit a time before you can walk on or you can wait and you can live with this swelling and you can live with this infection. And it won't be quite as painful, but it'll last a lot longer. And see, that 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 operation probably needs to happen in a heart here. There, there's something that's swelling. There's something that's festering. And somehow you've gotten the feeling, well, if I crutch around, if I don't put a lot of weight on it, then somehow it's going to get better. It's not going to get better. It, get, it gets better by just carving it out, just saying, hey, and it's going to be more painful in the short term. But if you want to walk on with Jesus then that needs to be carved out, whatever that may be. And it needs to be done in a public way. And when I say that, I don't mean at the end of the sermon, we're going to give everybody time to come up front and take the microphone and publicly confess their sin. But do you see how important it was for this conversation to happen with the disciples? What, what would have happened just a few weeks later if this conversation hadn't happened and Peter gets up and makes this New Testament uh, proclamation and 3,000 people get saved? I, w- I wonder what might have been going through Peter's mind. I wonder what might have been going through the other disciples' mind who are all sitting there. You see, that could have, something could have really festered in that group. Because it never really got ironed out. Peter never really had to look at them and say, you know what, I'm not better than you. Peter could have just done that with Jesus, and that would have been nice, but not big enough, right? He had to go public, meaning he he had to get the people in the room that he had said, I've done this thing that's wrong to you. I need to let you know about it. And it may be that you said, I've confessed my sins to Jesus, but you haven't confessed your sin to the person or the people in which you need to go before. It might be. A small group, it might be a family, might be a group of elders. I don't know what it would be for you. But this kind of confession, 
doesn't bring condemnation. It brings freedom. Proverbs 28, people who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Final observation. Final, final look across the fire. Maybe the first two weren't where you are, but this, this third one is what Jesus wants you to hear this morning. I want you to notice that the, the way Jesus restores Peter, who, who would blame Jesus, Jesus if what had been written here was, and Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, you can go home now and do the best you can as a layman. Yeah, you're in the fold. You're one of my sheep, but I can never use you in a place of leadership again. I mean, if that's what we would have read, we would have said, that sounds about right. I mean, he still gets in. That's great. But, I mean, he's kind of lost it now. He's just got to kind of be on the second tier Kind of a local guy, but, you know, he's not going to really be in any leadership position. And he's blown it. I mean, you think you've blown it? This is blowing it. Saying, I don't have any idea who Jesus is. And then looking across the campfire and seeing Jesus on his way to the cross. That's pretty big. But Jesus doesn't say that. You notice that every time Peter speaks repentantly, Jesus speaks restoratively. It's like Peter's emptying out some darkness and Jesus is emptying in some light each time. Jesus speaks restoratively, he restores Peter back to a place of leadership, which is just amazing grace. And, and I wish I could just take this passage and go back to Genesis and see that Peter has fallen and he's being restored back to leadership. With so many connections we can make, but we can't go that, that direction. I think Peter is aware of this amazing grace, and I say that because of verse 7. If I had been Peter, perhaps when John the, John the disciple says, Hey, it's the Lord! What might you have done if you were Peter? Oh, hide me behind all these fish. Maybe you won't know I'm with you. I mean, that's been would have been sort of my take. Hey, everybody huddle in front of me and I'll duck down low. Maybe, you know, Jesus won't see me. But what does Peter do? He throws himself into the sea. He just can't wait because I think Peter already understood, even though he knows his mistake and even though he might encounter Jesus and there may be some pain, he understands that every time what you get with Jesus is a, a mighty river of grace that runs underneath all the other things. And so Peter's well aware of this amazing grace and he's throwing himself in to Jesus and I think what's one of the critical things to notice here is, is how Peter doesn't disqualify himself from leadership. Peter doesn't allow his history to rob him of his destiny. Peter doesn't say to Jesus, Jesus, thank you so much for your forgiveness, but I'm disqualifying myself from my future destiny. You see, after what I've done, I, I can't possibly be in a place of leadership. I'm, I'm stepping aside. I'm putting myself on the sideline. Jesus, instead of your grace controlling my future, I'm going to nurse my past failures. I, I'm going to keep them alive so they dominate my destiny. 
Maybe this is part of the conversation that Jesus wants to have with you. See, see, you're nursing your past failures and they're controlling your future instead of the grace of God dominating your destiny. You're just fanning into flame these past failures and you're reminding yourself of what you did and how you couldn't possibly be used by God from this point forward. Peter doesn't allow his past failures to be an excuse for future effort. He, he doesn't allow his failure to be an excuse for future failure. You ever done that? Well, I failed once in that area. Who cares now? I mean, I opened a pack of Oreos and I ate one. I might as well eat the whole package. You ever done that? Well, that's like little nuggets of sin, right? Little dark nuggets of delicious sin. You eat one and you say, well, now that I've opened the package, I might as well really blow it. That's a lie from Satan. Peter doesn't do that. He's not going to allow his past failures to dominate his his future destiny. If you use your past sin as an excuse... You're effectively denying the cross. You're just saying, that wasn't enough for me. My sin's a little bit unique. C.J. Mahaney makes a great point here. Let there be no non-Christian think that God is holding you, is not holding you responsible for your sin. Let there be no non-Christian think that God isn't holding you responsible for your sin. And, and let there be no Christian who assumes in their arrogance that the seriousness of your sin exceeds the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Oh, how easy that is to do. Oh, but, but my sin is so serious that his sacrifice isn't sufficient. Peter doesn't make that mistake. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if he's saying, hey, I, I couldn't make that mistake, Paul. I'm sitting across from Jesus and he sits there. And what do I see? I see the nail scarred hands. He's looking at me and I'm looking at his hands. And I know his sacrifice was sufficient for my sin. And it's possible that as a Christian, you've disqualified yourself from the future Jesus has for you. Instead, you're, you're allowing your history to determine your destiny. And you haven't really thrown yourself in. You're not really sure there's a river of grace that runs underneath a conversation with Jesus about your sin. The gospel of John is primarily written to those who don't believe. It's written so that you would hear it, that you would read it, that you would embrace it, and that you would say, I trust that Jesus is the Savior. I don't know everything about him by reading this gospel. I didn't understand everything in the gospel. But I know enough of myself and I know enough of Jesus to say I'm trusting in Jesus. And that's the question, really, that dominates the gospel. 
But it's possible since most people here this morning are believers that that this has been this little campfire meeting that that Jesus has had with you. Which which one of those places has God wanted to work on you this morning? Let's pray together.